ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 124, Pope John the 10th. Wow. Are you ready for nicknames? Yes, I am. And honestly, this is a pope that needs like a real good nickname because things are about to kick off in very interesting ways. So I hope that is reflected in where we go. So let's see. He gets a 14 and... A 16. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So he is a wee liar. <laughs> a wee liar. Okay. Um, interesting. <laughs> well, let's see how this. <laughs> let's see how this wee liar <laughs> is going to do. I'm dying. Don't die. Is he a wee liar? <laughs> well, we'll see. Because either he's a wee liar or the sources are wee liars about him. And we have lots to discuss. So let's see how this wee liar does. <laughs> John was born in Tossignano, which is in northern Italy near Bologna. His father's name was John. And he had a brother called Peter, who we'll definitely be coming back to later. Now, of course, because this is the pornocracy, John is also accused of being the son of our last pope, Lando, and Theodora, the senatrix of the House of Tusculum, because, of course, we're seeing this pattern. But we talked last time that that makes no sense because of their relative ages. Yes, and we also know something about his family and we know things about his pre-papal life that make it definite that we can say that that's not true because it would be really weird. Right. Yeah, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so John entered the church in Bologna and was made a deacon there by the bishop, Peter IV. And likely this is where he would have stayed and made his entire church career, staying in Bologna as a humble priest if it weren't for a trip to Rome that he went on. Just a, just a normal sort of pilgrimage experience. But while in Rome, according to Luprand of Cremona, John caught the attention of Theodora, and the two became lovers. Oh. Yes. In the words of Luprand, Theodora, as I testified, a quite shameless prostitute, inflamed with the heat of Venus, lusted ardently because of the beauty of John's appearance, and not only desired, but actually forced him, oh shame, to fornicate with her over and over again. Oh, I'm sure there was a lot of forcing. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, shame, shameless prostitute. I don't think she was getting paid. No, she was, but this is the reign of the harlots, Fry. <laughs> Prostitutes everywhere. Okay. Anyways, like everything from Liet Prand, we need to take this with a grain of salt. But as a side note, fun sort of point here, as of this episode, Lutprand is now technically contemporary because he was born sometime around the year 920, which is while John is Pope. So okay. he is now alive during this period. He's alive. He's alive. Not that that makes his account any more reliable, though. I mean, other historians, no. like Johann Peter Kirsch, suggest that it's more likely that Theodore and John were related, and this is why he had her favor. Especially since, by this point, Theodora was definitely not a young woman anymore, and probably wasn't, like, lusting ardently at beautiful men. I need to see his face. <laughs> I guess it'll come later. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about this super hot And if they're family, that makes it way weirder. Gent, aren't you excited? I get to ask you the question you love so much. Relatives or lovers? <laughs> no. But we do know that Theodora definitely did favor John, though. And through her attentions, his station and influence are about to rise. It's just, we have to decide whether he was a relative or just so hot that she couldn't resist and forced him into things. <laughs> 
so. As like an old cougar. Yeah, like a really old cougar. So I also want you, like you said, you want to see his face. I want you to remember throughout this episode that he's supposed to be super hot when we get to Facium Sanctus. Just keep that in the back of your brain. Super hot for who? Super hot. Uh, (laughs) Theodore's lusting after this beautiful man. (laughs) Oh, how awful. Oh, yeah. So for whatever reason we've decided on, relatives or lovers, Theodora wanted John to advance in the church. And their initial goal was to have John succeed Peter, the Bishop of Bologna, when he died. It would be a nice, cushy bishopric for the favorite of the Senatrix. However, before that could happen, the Archbishop of Ravenna died in 904. And this was a much bigger and better opportunity for John. And Theodora's all over it. She's like, oh yes, my favorite. I'm going to put him there instead. So through their first puppet pope, Sergius III, Theodora secured the archbishopric for John, and he was consecrated as Archbishop of Ravenna by Pope Sergius in early 905. So bear this in mind, John is yet another papal candidate who has already been consecrated not only to a bishopric, but a big and very important bishopric. You know how that goes. Yeah. So John was the Archbishop of Ravenna for eight years. And during this time, he demonstrated his very open support and loyalty to Pope Sergius, and by extension, to Theophylact and Theodora. Now, this would have been such a wonderful place to include our old friend Agnellus of Ravenna and his Liber Pontificalis Ecclesiae Ravenatis, but unfortunately, we have surpassed the end of our old Pope-hating friend and don't have the same sort of detail that would be so useful in this moment. So unfortunately, the only other things we know about his time as Archbishop come from small offhand mentions from Francesco Liverani, who states, quote, he had, whilst Archbishop, to vindicate his rights, both against a would-be usurper of his see and against the abbot of the famous monastery of Nonantola, who was anxious to free it from the control of the Archbishops of Ravenna. So regarding Nonantola, we only get a small additional note from Girolamo Tiraboschi, who says that John was prohibiting bishops from being consecrated at Nonantola, and the monastery was upset about that. And thank you to Marco from Storia d'Italia for helping source and translate that little bit, because that's all we have. And unfortunately, we don't get any further information about this alleged would-be usurper, other than Bartolomeo Platina suggesting that John was eventually, quote, deposed from the archbishopric by the people in a tumult. Doesn't seem true, given what happens next. Okay. Because what happens next is that in early 914, Pope Lando dies, and John is summoned by Theophylact and Theodora to leave Ravenna to assume the papacy in Rome. And once again, we go to Liatprand for the saltiest of flavor here. After a small interval of time, at the summons of God, the Pope who had unjustly ordained him died, too. Oh. Thus Theodora, with the perverted mind of Glycerium, lest she should enjoy her lover by very rare beddings on account of the length of the 200 miles that separate Ravenna from Rome, pushed him to desert the see of the Archbishopric of the Revenants, oh wickedness, and to usurp the highest pontificate at Rome. He's so full of drama, this one. I just sort of nodded sagely. (laughs) (laughs) Like, nobody can hear me, but ah, yes, okay. (laughs) So again, whether or not this is true of Theodora's intentions... The House of Tusculum and their supporting nobles are naturally installing a new puppet pope. And who better than a powerful cleric who already owed them allegiance and had openly supported them and their previous puppet popes? But of course, his installation was not entirely smooth because of a major issue that should be quite obvious by now. He was a consecrated bishop of another see, and this is what had caused the whole cadaver synod issue in the first place, 
because of both Formosus and Stephen VI having been consecrated to previous sees and that being used to discredit their papacies in various ways. So once again, John is coming under heavy criticism for this usurpation of the See of Rome and the bigamy of his diocese and the literal violation of canon law. And this might have been a problem, like it had been for Stephen, if it had not been for Theophylact and his goons standing directly behind John as the real HBICs. So, despite all this rabble, John is in fact consecrated as Pope in March of 914, and, giving a little bit of foreshadowing, in the words of Platina, quote, John obtained the papal chair and showed more of the spirit of a soldier than a clergyman. Indeed, the church and all Italy had then need for such a pope. That's a pretty ominous statement to make. Yeah, a little bit. Why did the church and all of Italy have need of a soldier pope? Can you guess? Is someone invading? Someone is invading. Possibly whoever's in the north? It's not in the north. (laughs) Quite the opposite. Can you guess? Possibly who's ever in the south. I've forgotten already. (laughs) It's the same as before. It's the Saracens. Yes, the Saracens. Let's not forget that a significant force of Fatimid Saracens had established a stronghold in Italy on the banks of the Garigliano River, which is roughly halfway between Rome and Naples, and right on the border of the Papal States. From this stronghold, they are launching raids into Campania, Calabria, Apulia, and central Italy. This has been a major problem, and now it is a major problem. How major? So major that Pope John, our wee liar, (laughs) realized that if the Muslim forces were able to continue to hold the banks the way they had, they're going to be able to threaten Rome and all of Italy. And just like they had with Sicily and southern Italy, they're going to find only fragmented and fractious forces to resist them, resulting in further conquest. And to make it worse, there is even a potential that at this point, the Saracens are being encouraged by the Byzantines to invade Italy as a retaliation against Landolf, the Prince of Benevento, whom they'd been in conflict with. So if they have Byzantine backup, they're even more of a threat. They're just in... Okay, the Byzantines are like, I don't like this one guy in particular. Let's mess with all of Italy. Yeah, let's just send the Saracens in more, and then they'll take him out. And then if they take out everybody else in the process, whoops, doesn't really bother us. So this has to be priority number one. It cannot wait, and the Pope cannot afford to be passive. Our last couple Popes have been very passive. They've acknowledged that this is a problem and have done nothing. John is not going to be that man. He starts gathering forces and allies from everywhere and anywhere he can. He sends papal legates to all of these fractious, fragmented Italian leaders, and even to Constantinople to entreat the Byzantines for assistance. You know, hey, if you're doing this, stop and maybe help us get this under control. And it works. Pope John is able to create a full-on Christian alliance a league unlike anything that had been seen up to this point, to come together and supply an army to beat back the Fatimid Saracens. Really? Yeah! (laughs) We don't have time to get into, like, the complete bogged down pictures of all of the players that get involved in this, but we should acknowledge some of the major figures to truly appreciate just how widespread and thorough John was in who he managed to bring in. So first off, of course, we have Theophylact, representing the secular authority of Rome. But we also have Landulf, Prince of Benevento, Alberic, Duke of Spoleto, and Margrave of Camerino. John, who is the Hypatos, which is essentially Greek Duke, of Gaeta, and his son, Dosibilis. Guimar, the Lombard Prince of Salerno. Gregory, Duke of Naples, and his son, John. 
Berengar, king of Italy. Berengar. Yep. <laughs> Berengar is going to play a role in this. And on top of all that, we also have the Byzantine forces stationed in Calabria under General Nicholas Pekingli, who, by the way, his non-Latinized name is basically Epingingles. <laughs> what? Ep- it's probably like pronounced very different, but on paper it's Epingingles. And Beautiful. I had to put that in the notes just for you. Love it. Epingingles. Epingingles. It's a good name for a dog. <laughs> Epingingles, get over here. I like it. So this is a massive collected effort of the biggest powers of the whole region actually uniting to face the Saracen threat. Huge deal. The armies together push back the spreading satellite Muslim camps, concentrating them back at the Garigliano riverbanks where they could be surrounded. And this becomes the Battle of Garigliano where the Christian forces sieged the Muslim stronghold for three months, relentlessly forcing the depletion of supplies. The Saracens were trapped and forced to destroy their own fortifications in an attempt to create a distraction so they could escape. Okay. In the words of Platina, the forces attacked them at Minterne, upon the shore of the Garigliano River, and conquered them with so great a slaughter that they resolved to leave Italy, only burning first all those places on that shore which were in their hands. Like, they are so desperate, they're going to burn everything to try and get away. But on their attempt, the Saracens are captured and slaughtered to a man. Oh, wow. Yeah. For the Pope, this is a massive win. Yeah. Huge. We've murdered a bunch (laughs) of people. That's not very Popely. It's not very popely, but it is like he's just secured all of this area that has been constantly under raid Mm -hmm. and attack and conquest. The Saracens are well and truly routed to the point where they will not be an imminent threat for a good long while. They are forced entirely out of central Italy. And then on this momentum, the existing Byzantine forces in southern Italy and Sicily also get the upper hand and force them even further out. So they're like gone in one fell swoop. But here's the big part. Pope John not only made this alliance, and therefore this battle to happen, but he's in the thick of it. We have a Pope in person, on the battlefield, coordinating the offenses. Battle Pope. Yeah, a literal battle Pope making himself known and actively engaging with the troops from every region. He's in the thick of it. From the Monte Cassino Chronicle, Leo of Ostia says, At the end of that period, reduced to despair by hunger, the Saracens, burning their homes behind them, endeavored to cut their way through their besiegers. Animated by the presence of the Pope who freely exposed his person, the Allies met them with the greatest courage, pursued those who succeeded in cutting their way through the Christian lines, and in this way, by the help and mercy of God, utterly eradicated them from these parts in the year of our Lord's incarnation, 915. It's pretty impressive. Okay. Everyone's eradicated. Yeah. John is there. He's literally a battle pope. He did it. Now there's no Saracens. There are no Saracens. Well, there are no attacking Saracens. There are no invading Saracens. Mm-hmm. And John is literally like walking the walk. In the words of Horace K. Mann, quote, Good work had to be done and John did it. The influence of the Pope alone was then powerful enough to bring together in harmony, even for a short space, the discordant elements which then composed the ruling powers of Italy. What his influence alone could bring together, his presence alone could keep together. John's appearance in the Christian camp on the Garigliano gave courage to the soldiers and unity to the leaders. This was the view of his action, which Rome took of his deeds at the time. So quite literally, move over, Julius II. We have an actual, real warrior pope on our hands. Here we go. Yeah. So bear this in mind when we get to Papatum Infallium. I guess so. And Seculari Impactum. Mm-hmm. 
So let's appreciate how massive this endeavor really was, because it goes beyond this. Not only have the Saracens been forced out of central Italy, which is categorical success for the alliance, but the alliances actually hold in some significant ways. John's allies are rewarded with new territory and enhanced titles. The Duke of Gaeta was granted new authority over Trieto and the conquered Saracen holdings, and Alberic of Spoleto was designated as a consul of Rome. But more importantly, Berengar, king of Italy, is finally going to get his imperial crown. After all this time, John basically promised Berengar that he would be crowned as Holy Roman Emperor if he provided support for the attack against the Saracens. And so he's actually going to do it. Uh All right. So Berengar arrived in Rome on December 3rd, 915. And meeting directly with Theophylact and the Pope at St. Peter's Basilica, he was coroneted as Holy Roman Emperor. There's a great quote here from Horace K. Mann that describes the whole of the events here. Great was the joy of the populace when the king's heralds announced his approach. Looking forward to an amelioration of the existing state of things, the people streamed forth to meet and welcome the king. Thither to greet him, he proceeded the senate and the different scole of the foreigners, all chanting the usual laudes and bearing banners ornamented with the heads of eagles, lions, wolves, and dragons. Each nation acclaimed the emperor-elect in its own language, first the Romans, then the Greeks, then the other nationalities in order. The procession was closed by the son of the consul Theophylact and by the brother Peter of the Pope, who, in token of submission, kissed the feet of the king. Riding on one of the Pope's horses, Berengar advanced through the surging masses of the people anxious to see the new emperor to the vestibule of St. Peter's, where at the top of the steps the Pope was awaiting him. Dismounting from his horse, Berengar ascended the steps with no little difficulty, so demonstrative in its greetings was the pressing crowd. After he had been greeted by the Pope with a kiss and a handshake, both stood before the gates of the Basilica, where Berengar renewed all the promises made by his imperial predecessors to the Roman See. The gates were then thrown open, and as the Pope and the King entered the Basilica, the clergy intoned the laudes in their honor. After praying before the shrine of St. Peter, the Pope and the King adjourned to the palace adjoining the Basilica. Amid the excited shouts of an easily aroused crowd, who called on the Pope, by the chains of the master St. Peter, not to delay the coronation, Berengar was anointed and crowned. Again was raised the laudes, praying for long life for the new emperor, and that he might have strength to free the empire from the burdens under which it was groaning. Under which it was groaning. So many burdens. You groan under the burdens. So many burdens. (laughs) So with the Pope's endorsement and the support of the House of Tusculum, Suddenly, Berengar, who's had nothing but a hard time, had the support of the nobles in Rome and some of the stability he's never possessed before. Surprise! Yeah, surprise. Everybody's a little bit surprised. (laughs) And I want to mention here, because there isn't a natural place to put this in, but it's kind of important for events to come. So somewhere around this time... Theodora, Senatrix of Rome, wife of Theophylact, alleged lover or relative of Pope John, dies. So she is no longer in the picture moving forward. Okay, because she was old. She was old and not lusting for beautiful men. (laughs) So I just had to throw that in here because there's nowhere else to put it. There's so much we need to talk about. Because when I say that Berengar's stability and support of the Italian nobles was surprising... It was also very temporary, like so temporary, because by 923, they once again had fragmented and grown dissatisfied and turned against him. Okay. Yep. Again. They're just like that, I guess. Honestly, the nobles of Italy in this period are the worst. In this case, it's a group of nobles led by Adalbert, the Margrave of Ivrea, And they decide to invite Rudolf II, who is king of Upper Burgundy, to just come invade, seize control, and become the next king of Italy, much like they had done with Louis of Provence. 
And Rudolph is like, great, that sounds awesome. He invades Italy and meets Berengar in battle at the Battle of Firenzuola, where, in short, Berengar is defeated and Rudolph is crowned King of Italy. Note that that is King of Italy, not Holy Roman Emperor. So he still got that one. But he has been defeated, and so Berengar retreats to Verona, where he was then murdered by one of his own (laughs) troops. Oh my god, what, really? Yep. So he was a Holy Roman Emperor for a hot mo still after he lost the Kingdom of Italy and then died. So we now have a new King of Italy. But as we just said, the princes and dukes of Italy do not want to actually be ruled by anyone. And so now that Rudolph is there because they invited him to be, it was time to undermine him as well. Oh my god, these people. (laughs) So they invite Hugh of Arles, King of Provence, and successor to Louis the Blind, who, remember, was our Holy Roman Emperor before Berengar, to come to Italy and be king in 926. So this is all happening within, like, every three years. It's all so flaky and flighty. Flaky and flighty is definitely what you need to call them. They are the flakiest and the flightiest. (laughs) Yes, this is like the most dramatic click on the planet. But this time, Pope John is involved. John clearly thought that allying with Hugh, who is deeply entrenched in the lineage of Holy Roman Emperors, would be far more advantageous for Rome and Italy. And so he also writes to Hugh directly and says, Hey, I am inviting you to come and rule in Italy. And he sends an official papal legate to meet with him when he arrived in Pisa. So Rudolf, who's just come in and expelled Berengar and been made king of Italy, is then expelled by Hugh and goes back to Upper Burgundy and renounces any claim on Italy. So Italy now has, again, a new king. And this one was someone John expected that he could rely on. But we're going to leave it there for a moment, because this is as good a place as any to have a brief look at John's extended reach outside of Italy. There's a lot of things that were going on. So let's start with Constantinople. In 920, the Byzantine Emperor Romanos and the Patriarch Nicholas Mystikos reached out to the Pope over the issue that had most recently separated the East and West Church. I don't know if you remember this, but it was the whole fourth marriages issue that had come up over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if you don't remember and you are listening, quick refresher, the emperor wanted to get married for a fourth time. Because people kept dying. (laughs) Yeah. And the patriarch had refused to carry out this fourth marriage on the grounds that third and fourth marriages were forbidden in the canons of the Eastern Church. First and second... Okay, but then it gets grosser. The emperor and the patriarch had then appealed to Pope Sergius III for clarity, and Pope Sergius had supported the fourth marriage. And then the patriarch had been deposed for resisting the emperor. Now, in this time period since, said patriarch had been restored, but his authority was constantly on shaky ground due to the fact that he'd been previously deposed. So he's writing to John saying, hey, could you help me out and actually condemn this whole fourth marriage thing and declare that my deposition was invalid? And John was of no help whatsoever. He completely defends the decision made by Pope Sergius, again, Theophylact, House of Tusculum Pope, and says that fourth marriages were indeed valid in the Western Church. Although it does seem that he openly recognized Nicholas as patriarch, so he's not like, you deposed. He's actually Mm -hmm. dealing with him. He's just not being helpful. You're basic. (laughs) You're basic. Let your people get married four times. That's the thing. Not divorced four times. Married four times. Yes. Definitely he was made a widower all of those times. But it was always kind of like, now I want to marry my mistress. So none of it was good. (laughs) John also had some interesting contact with Spain regarding the Mozarabic Rite, which is also known as the Visigothic or Hispanic Rite, which was heavily utilized in Spain and Portugal in this period. In very, very simple terms, 
This is a liturgical rite as a surviving Christian practice that had been used by the Christians in Muslim-occupied Spain, a.k.a. Moorish Christians or Muzarabes, which gives this its name, the Mozarabic rite. Now, the rite itself had characteristics of the Roman rite and a little bit of, of characteristics of the Gallic rite that had founded Frankish Christianity, but it also had elements of Gothic Christianity, which comes all the way back from when Spain was first made Christian, because remember, they were often Aryan. And this seems to be the point of contention. They're not really sure. There are some people who are raising concerns whether this should be a valid right in the church or not. So Pope John sent a legate called Zanello to Spain to investigate the right and determine whether it upheld the proper orthodoxy. His legate investigated and confirmed to Pope John that the right was indeed acceptable, and so John becomes the first pope to officially recognize and approve the right as canonically acceptable, advising only a minor shift of language regarding the consecration. Nice stability instead of just trying to overhaul the entire Christian Church of Spain. Yeah. John also checked in with the Slavic Church to find that despite many bans at this point, as you might remember, the church over there is still using the Slavonic liturgy. So John sends some legates to Croatia, which is now a kingdom, with letters for the king, Tomislav, and for one of the dukes, calling on them to enforce the ban and to call a synod to reiterate that it is canon law that you are not supposed to use the Slavonic liturgy anymore. A synod was held in Split in 926, once again confirming that there is a ban on Slavonic liturgy, except in cases where there was a complete lack of priests. So look, if no one is there to actually be an ordained priest, fine, do your rites in the Slavonic. But if there are priests, do it in the Latin way. And to sort of cement this process, it also implements a ban on the ordination of any cleric who couldn't read or speak Latin. This is all things that we have seen before, but it's a nice sort of official synod, and we're going to be coming back to a second synod on this issue in our next episode. Another one. Yep. They're not done with dealing with the Slavic church. And similarly, also in things that we've seen before, the Bulgars make a reappearance at this point under Tsar Simeon I, because... They are currently in conflict with Constantinople, and as a result, they'd love to shift the allegiance of their church away from the Patriarch of Constantinople and back to Rome. How very Boris I of them. And of course, this is what every pope wants to hear, and John enthusiastically sends legates to Simeon in the hopes of securing that shift of obedience. He even sends crowns to Simeon and his son Peter to officially recognize and confirm their rule and encourage them because we know that that's what the Bulgars need. He also sent legates who assisted in various peace negotiations between the Bulgars and Constantinople and between the Bulgars and the Croats just to make an easier time so they could really, you know, focus on religion. And so... For a short time, Bulgaria was back being subject to the Western Church once again. Unfortunately, it would not last past the end of the century. The Bulgars continue to shop around for religion. Now in East Francia, sort of modern-day Germany, John got involved in the power struggle of the king, Conrad I of Franconia. Conrad had succeeded Louis the Child, Louis the Child. Louis the Child. I know. They just, they have some of the most unimaginative epithets, but you really get a picture of what's going on. So he'd been elected by the Dukes of the region, but much like we've seen with the flaky and flighty Dukes and Princes of Italy, King Conrad didn't possess a platform of power strong enough to establish authority over his Dukes and was consistently undermined particularly by his own uncles, Duke Arnulf of Bavaria, Erchanger, and Bertolt. So John gets involved. He sends a papal legate, and not just any papal legate. 
he sends his own brother Peter to East Francia to convene a synod in 916. At this synod, Peter and the Frankish bishops openly declare support for Conrad and summon the dukes that are opposing him to Rome to present themselves before the synod or to go to Rome and present themselves to the Pope to make their case. Obviously, that did not happen, and so they are all excommunicated. Just bye. Yeah, just bye. No, you're not going to get on board with the Pope. I can excommunicate you. I'll make your life hard. There is also a special extra charge for the one duke, Erchanger, who was sentenced by the Pope to a lifetime of penance in a monastery for the crime of seizing a bishop for his loyalty to Conrad. So not only are you excommunicated, but you should go and just be away from the rest of the world in penance forever. All right. And now we must deal with Charles the Simple, king of West Francia and Lotharingia, who also got himself in trouble with his nobles. Ah, uh, yes. Simple, not because he was simple-minded, but because he came up with quick solutions. Straightforward. Yes, exactly. Now, John's involvement began when King Charles appointed and then canceled the appointment of a new bishop of Liege, Hildewin, because that bishop who he appointed, immediately turned on him and allied with his enemies. Oh, rude. Yeah, not good. So he's like, oh, you're going to just ally with my enemies? I cancel your appointment as bishop. This is, of course, not usually how the appointment of a bishop is supposed to go, but the result essentially works out to Charles chooses someone else to be bishop. This is a man called Richard. But then Richard is captured by Hildewin, the originally appointed bishop, and actually forced to help in the consecration of Hildewin. And now everyone's mad. And appeals are being made to John, who immediately placed both Richard and Hildewin under interdict, which means they are forbidden from saying mass. It's unclear who's the bishop. Neither of you should be performing sacraments. Until you come to Rome, and I will hear your case. And they do. They come to Rome, and in Rome... John sided with Richard, consecrated him as the rightful bishop, and excommunicated Hildewin for his actions. But Charles the Simple's problems were far from over, and in 923, he was captured and held prisoner by Count Herbert of Vermandois, where he was declared deposed by the nobles of West Francia in favor of someone else, Robert, Count of Paris. And Pope John hears this, and he is not happy. But if our sources are to be believed, he's kind of the only one. He's the only leader anywhere that voices opposition for Charles's imprisonment and calls for his release and restoration. So, quoting from Horace K. Mann, Against the treason of Herbert, John alone raised his voice. He threatened the count with excommunication unless he restored Charles to freedom. But with men such as he had to deal with, John could affect little. And this is unfortunately very true. For reasons we're going to come to in a moment, John is not going to be able to put much weight behind condemning Charles's captors, or even putting a stop to Count Herbert installing his five-year-old son as the new Archbishop of Reims, which the church really should have a problem with. He's just going to have bigger problems. Yeah. So let's get into those bigger problems, because... Before we go any further into how those are all going to play out, we need to revisit the House of Tusculum for a moment. So shortly before the time that the Pope confirmed Hugh as King of Italy, Theophylact, the man who is responsible for the many puppet popes of Rome, dies. And this meant both Theodora and Theophylact have passed on. Their daughter, Marozia, is now the sole influence of this house. And this is the one who really, all of the flack that gets thrown at Theodora, it's really very, very much based on how Marozia is because she fully intends to wield as much influence as her mother had and more. Okay. So Marozia at this point, or previously, just before this point, Marozia had been married to Alberic, Duke of Spoleto 
the duke that had been hugely significant in that Christian alliance and the Battle of the Garigliano River. And for that battle and his role in it, he had gained the title of Consul of Rome. But being in charge of Rome had gotten to Alberic's head, and he didn't want to share the power with Pope John, right? Now that Theophylact is dead, John is assuming true and genuine power for the first time in his papacy, and this is looking good, but this is going to come to a head because Alberic doesn't want to share with John. He wants to dominate John, and in Alberic's efforts to be the top dog, he ended up on the wrong side of a revolt of the Roman people and was expelled from the city. Oh boy. Yeah. But this doesn't mean he was done. Because he's a petty, petty, flaky, flighty Duke of Italy. And so instead, Alberic invites the Magyars, remember these are the nomadic Hungarians, into Italy to pillage and raid in retaliation. I'm going to give you a summary as it's provided to us by Bartolomeo Platino. Okay. Meanwhile, John, taking all of the honor of this action to himself, makes his entry into Rome after the manner of a triumph which gave so great a distaste to Alberic that a tumult arose upon it, in which Alberic was repulsed. Flying to Orta, he fortified the town and castle and enticed the Hungarians into Italy, who brought more destruction and ruin upon the country than the Saracens had done before. People are making very poor choices. So many poor choices. The revenge, these poor townspeople. And how did they do more ruin? They carried away the youth of both sexes, killing all that were stricken in years. Nor did they spare the very Tuscans, for whose indemnity Albericus had agreed in the treaty with them. Nay, they were more cruel to them than to the other Italians, for they burnt and demolished all the towns that they had possessed. But the Hungarians, having once tasted the sweet spoils of Italy, did frequently visit it afterwards, which calamities so much enraged the Romans that not being able to wreak their spite upon the enemy, who was too mighty and fierce for them, they took Albericus and beheaded him. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they're killing sick people, old people, and taking the children. Yeah. It's fair that they wanted to turn around and murder him. Yes. Get rid of this guy. You've just brought this into our country. Get out of here. And that brings us back to Marozia, who is now a widow with both of her parents dead, and her platform of power is suddenly very threatened. And she hates John. <sighs> now, interestingly, her motives for this, for how much she just hates John, are generally tied to this idea that John was having an affair with her mother. But as we've just stated, John also is responsible for the expulsion of her husband, which results in his death. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, so she likely had several reasons to hate John, not least of which was that he was her biggest rival now for HBIC of Rome, and she needs to gain control. So she decides the best way to do this is to get remarried right away to the next major Italian power. And this is Guy or Guido, Margrave of Tuscany, and half-brother of King Hugh. And Guy is absolutely here to challenge Pope John's power and conspire against him with Marozia. He's all for it. But the Pope is not blind to the fact that there is open hostility now. And he turns to the new king of Italy that he's just appointed for assistance. Now, unfortunately, at this time, King Hugh had just returned to Provence since the King of Provence, our old, blinded, former Holy Roman Emperor, Louis the Blind, had just died and a succession needed settling. So he was not going to be of any help to the Pope in this matter, if he would have been at all in the first place, because again, Guy is his half-brother. So knowing that they're not going to be stopped right away, Marozia and Guy decide that their first target is going to be John's brother, Peter, who we mentioned before. Oh, yeah, we mentioned way earlier. Yeah, Peter is not only the most powerful and influential advisor to the Pope, 
you know, he's been sent as a legate. He was there at the coronation of Berengar. After Alberic was beheaded, Peter got his title. He was named the Duke of Spoleto, which probably only goaded Marozio further. Now, somehow, Peter gets wise to the threat against him and flees Rome for Orta. And while there, he actually entreats with the Magyars, Hungarians who had just pillaged for Alberic, and uh, turns them loose on Tuscany, pillaging in revenge for Guy's aggression. Oh, wow. Same thing. It's, it's not a good look. It's, it's not particularly helpful. But he's basically saying, look, I need an army now, so why don't you come back with me to Rome? And, and they do. He returns to Rome at the head of a force of Magyar soldiers for extra protection. So between the raids in Tuscany, he's just kicked off again, and the actual army that's there with Peter, Marozia and Guy, appears to be forced into sort of stepping down and, and backing off for a bit. But that's all it was. Appearances. Quoting Horace Mann, At length, presuming no doubt that the terrible ravages of the Hungarians, who had laid waste to the whole of Tuscany with fire and sword, had sufficiently tamed its Marquis and his wife, Peter returned to Rome. But Guido was as crafty as his half-brother King Hugo. He contrived secretly to collect a body of troops, and with them made an attack on the Lateran Palace, where Peter was off his guard, and had but a few soldiers with him. He was cut to pieces before his brother's eyes, while John himself was thrust into a dungeon. Wow. Yep. Peter's now dead. Okay. Peter, Peter's dead, and John's in a dungeon. He is in the Castello San Angelo in prison, and in one fell swoop, Marozia and Guy have seized control of Rome. Okay. Not good. No. It's not made better, because then John dies in prison. That's, yeah. Yeah. They don't have good conditions there. <laughs> they do not. Accounts differ on exactly how he died. There are sources that say he died of anxiety or grief or a broken heart, but then there are also sources that are, like, smothered to death. So both of them seem likely. And, of course, Flodard tells us that he was strangled. He says, Pope John was deprived of his primacy by Marozia, a very powerful woman, and he was murdered while he was a captive. Some maintain that he was strangled. He's so much more gentle than Leapren is. Every time, every time they're like, oh, maybe he was strangled? Yep. But he definitely died in prison. And this is how Pope John, wee liar, hero of the Garigliano, ends his papacy. And in order to conceal the less than natural death of the Pope, or at least to lift suspicion from her, poorly, Marozia ensured that Pope John was buried in the Lateran with all due honor. Now you might be thinking, not buried in old St. Peter's? So not destroyed for new St. Peter's? Yeah. I sure was. And I got really excited. But unfortunately, his tomb was still destroyed in a fire oh, in the ladder. <laughs> in either 1308 or 1316. So after the fire, his remains were gathered and reburied in a new tomb near a lesser door in the Lateran. But the original one <laughs> still didn't make it. Now, his epitaph was written by Flodard. The body of the Supreme Pontiff John rests here. John X rises hereafter, ascending the sacred law. He had governed the people of Ravenna, thence by request he came and adorned the Roman arch fourteen times by which he surpassed Paul. As he generously embellished the sacred court, he advanced in peace until he was deceived by his rival patrician, thrown in prison, and confined in a shadowed den. Yet his spirit strong enough not to be restrained by the hostile caves sprang forth, ascending to the decreed seat of heaven. Okay. Now, this is interesting, too, this burial, Lateran, all of that. Wendy J. Reardon claims that this burial makes John the first pope to be buried within the city walls of Rome. And to the best of our knowledge and how much I could check up on our previous episodes, this seems to be true. All of the other burials were at the cemeteries outside of the walls, or in St. Peter's, which we know was notoriously outside the walls. 
Of course, many popes were then translated inside the walls after their deaths, like we saw with the mass translations of Pope Pascal, but that's a little different. So this may, in fact, be a pontifact. Pontifact! But that is our wee liar, <laughs> and it's time to rate him. All right. He was perhaps only a wee liar. <laughs> only a wee liar, yes. Papatum infallium. So this one's going to be a little bit of a challenge, because if we take Lutprand of Cremona's word for it, this is a disgraceful papacy, right? He achieved the papacy through sex. He was a puppet pope for a corrupt and meddling nobility and was used and discarded as the family saw fit. And there is some truth to at least the latter half of that. He, he was a puppet pope in many ways, and he was discarded when his patron family turned against him. This is not prestige or power or important doctrinal developments. Yeah. But is that all he is? Because we do see him as capable Historian E.R. Chamberlain calls him a statesman of the first rank. He created a powerful Christian alliance and showed up on the battlefield. This is a warrior pope. That is definitely prestige. Let's not forget what his influence alone could bring together, his presence alone could keep together. His only downfall here is assuming independent power, which is something he tried to do, at least for a time. Mm -hmm. And he is often compared to John VIII. Horace K. Mann says, In the hope of putting a term to the existing state of chaos and promoting the sacred interests of peace, both pontiffs strove to impart a new life to the imperial idea. Both of them brought about leagues and fought in person against the savage hordes of the Saracens in Italy. For their political freedom at home, both of them had to contend against an unbridled nobility. And if a threat of excommunication was thought necessary to bring kings to a sense of their duty, neither of them were afraid to employ it. So they were willing to use apostolic power. And we can also give him credit for ratifying the Mozarabic Rite. Yeah. So there are things. There are plenty of things. I'm leaning towards a seven or an eight. Okay, giving it to him high. I mean, I have to... I mean, he's done a lot. I mean, not many popes wander out and start stabbing people. <laughs> this is true. And that really does a lot for prestige, right? They were very Aww. impressed with him. He was a hero. Um, he doesn't do a lot for power or authority or independence. So there's that. But he is capable. And that's at least not degrading the papacy further. So I don't know if I can go as high as a seven or an eight, but I am very comfortable with a six. Okay. What do you think? Then I'll do seven. A nice 13 in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. So there are things to talk about here, right? He, he could have been a lover of Theodora. I don't want to, I don't want to make that judgment until I see his face. <laughs> Can we circle back around? No, no, you have to see his face oh. perfectly. You have to go with the beauty of his appearance, the desirable, horny, shameless nature of Theodora. He is referred to by Lutprand of being swollen with the spirit of ambition. He is accused of usurping the papacy because, again, he was the bishop of the Revenant Church and therefore should not have had a bigamous diocese. He, in the popular imagination, mostly because of Lutprand, is very scandalous. Like, later sources, you know, really, really definitely go hard on him. John Fox refers to John as the son of Pope Lando and Theodore, which means, if that was true, he was having an affair with his mom. <laughs> and one final quote in this category from Louis-Marie de Corminen who says he was the son of a nun and a priest, more occupied with his lusts and debauchery than with the affairs of Christendom. He was ambitious, avaricious, an apostate, destitute of shame, faith, and honor, and sacrificed everything to his passion. The disgrace of humanity. Wow. Yeah. They do not make it sound like he has done anything. I know! They're just like, this man laid around and ate grapes. <laughs> And hung out with ladies. And look, there are popes where that sentence would describe their entire papacy. And they are a-coming. 
and they are not that far away. But he ate that. Yeah, so I don't know. I feel like um, we can give him maybe like a three. Okay, all right. I will, yeah. Because everyone's like, oh, he's so scandalous. Oh my God, but I don't know. It just, he's too busy. He is too busy, this is the thing. I will give him points for the potential affair, regardless of whether I thought it happened, because it is definitely a scandal that is associated with him. Mm-hmm. I will give him points for the bigamist diocese period, because we know how controversial this was at the time. And I will give him points for a little bit of nepotism, because clearly his brother's doing uh, super yes. well here as a result of him. So if you're going to do a three, I'm going to do a four. And he'll get a seven. Okay. Seculari impactum. Okay. This is his category. Are you sure? I mean, the Christian League here. Let's let's talk. I'm going to quote here from Horace K. Mann. Most writers are of accord that he is unquestionably entitled to respect for at least the sum of his qualities. For however the Archbishop of Ravenna might be no example of piety or holiness as the spiritual head of Christendom, he appears to have been highly qualified for the secular part of his office. He was a man of ability and daring, eminently wanting at this juncture to save Rome from becoming the prey of the Mohammedary conquest. He forms the Christian alliance. There is this successful victory of that alliance at the Battle of the Garigliano River, the defeat of the Muslim threat. The Saracens are out of Italy, out of southern Italy. They're not going to be a threat for a long time. He personally led people in battle, freely showed himself for morale. Like this is, if this was Rex Factor, he'd be getting battliness points. He is Mm-hmm. very actively involved with the political machinations of his time. Gives Berengar his crown. Doesn't go super well. He supports Hugh as king of Italy. He yeah, he is looking for unity. He's really, really, really a statesman at heart. Okay, so let's roll with like an eight. Yeah, I think it's like an eight. I will match your eight and he'll get a 16 for Seculari. Impact him. Fossium Sanctus. Okay. Are you ready for the super hot Pope? Uh, oh my god. Are you? Is he gonna be like... I don't know. Let's see. Let's see this man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have to admit... <laughs> I have to admit, there is a slightly better version of this image. This one looks... So incredibly deformed that I could not not leave with it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't get much better. Every image that I have of this Pope is, is not a good one. Uh, I feel like he needed to shave more of his tonsure. Yeah, the tonsure is bad. And like, okay, he's got a big Roman nose. But then imagine like tiny, tiny face. <laughs> Like a like a Bella Ramsey face with a giant Roman nose. Yeah, it's and it's got like a Neanderthal forehead going. <laughs> he should have like a seven head, but he <laughs> doesn't shave his tonsure all the way. This is a man who would absolutely have benefited from just being bald. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and his lips are really tiny, but like really thick. It's it's he hasn't had a haircut in a very. This is like. COVID haircut situation. He's basically got a mullet. It, is, it does look like a mullet. Everything about it is, is really bad. And I mean, he's going to score well because it made me laugh so hard when I was writing this episode as they kept talking about <laughs> the beauty of John. And so, like, I am deeply amused with this. Okay, I... So... In the in the bottom one, I can kind of see it. Like he's got a very soft, feminine, type, Venus face. <laughs> okay. With the plush lips and the soft brows. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. I mean. Yeah, but no, that first one is is what gets me every time. <laughs> it- His beauty is that of a. A lady. 
he's pretty. <laughs> I mean, you're being far more generous than I will be, but I'm going to give it an eight because it was so deeply funny to me. Oh, I have to give him a two. This <laughs> hurts me. This hurts me in my soul. And I knew that it would. someone saw that that like the story is like someone saw this and went, I need that. I'm so hot <laughs> for that. Exactly. I love it. So that means when you give him a two and I give him an eight, he gets a ten, which is a two point five when we score it out. But I do have other images for you. The first one I'm going to show you is actually a drawing of him being smothered to death in prison. And Marozia is there and her face. <laughs> oh, she is grumpy. It is taking far too long. She has no patience for this. Right? It's fantastic. I, I love this one. It's, it, we, don't, we don't see many dramatic images like this. No. Now I have a bunch of bad art for you. So we have bad art one. And bad art too that go in the same category of bad art is still. He's trying to improve. He's trying to, but remember, this is supposed to be a super hot dude. <laughs> this is in no way. No, 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 no. He just has a basic Colin Mockery outline yes. that he uses every time. And then we get a good artist who has still drawn a very unattractive man. Oh, okay. He has he has some plush lips still. <laughs> he really has the plush lips. He really has the Roman nose. It's very large. Actually, all of his features individually are very large. He's looking like Al Pacino. He, you know, when I saw this, what came to mind immediately is John Hanna, like Batiatis from Spartacus. Oh, yeah. Like a hundred percent looks like John Hanna to me. Yes. Okay. So. I mean, his nose is way bigger, but Yes. yes. But I'm really, really glad that we got to rate this poem. Is he in Spartacus? Yeah. He's the brother from The Mummy for everything. Oh, yeah, that's right. He is in The Mummy. I've only seen that once, and, and I really only care about the guy who's very, very gleefully committing suicide. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes, he is in Spartacus. He's the, he's the owner of the Ludus. He was also at the beginning of The Last of Us. Yes, that's right. He talks about mushrooms and how they're going to kill everybody. About fungus. About Death fungus. fungus. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad we got to rate on the image that we did because so worth it. <laughs> Tempus Pontificus. So March 914 to May 928, 14 years and a score of 3.5. This is highest score we've seen in a very long time. Leo the third and Sergius the first. That's the last time. Oh. Yeah, so it's been a long time since we've seen a pope with that kind of rain. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. I mean, no. His early actions could have been worth it in an interesting period. He would he would have been a fun if patron he had saint. Just been the battle pope, they might yeah. maybe. It would be really cool if he had just been the battle pope and it would have been something we could have discussed. He could have been a patron saint of papal military or something or alliances, military alliances. It would have been great, but he's not. And the suppression ensured that it wasn't going to happen. So that brings us to his total score, which is a very impressive 42. Oh. Yeah. We're getting up there. That puts him in 11th place, Fry. Amazing. That is really good. And I think we have a discussion on our hands here because I am now going to ask you if you think he was papally enough, pizzazzy enough, with an impact enough for a papal bull. Is there really a discussion? I would give it to him. I would give it to him too. I mean, absolutely. We're talking, this is height pornocracy scandal this is being directly embroiled in the house of tusculum this is the the christian alliance this is the pushing out of the muslims it is yeah this is a pope who is worth talking about and so i very happily give it to him that's good because the last pope who got it got it because he was our Lowest scoring pope. <laughs> You're, not gonna let, <laughs> You're not gonna let me live that one down. 
You're just going to put more gifts of cats. <laughs> I was looking at our spreadsheet going, why? Oh, we recently gave one. Oh, right. That's why. <laughs> yeah, but this one actually gets it because he deserves it, which that feels better. <laughs> well done. Congratulations, you wee liar. <laughs> just a little bit. Tiny lies. So that brings us to the end of our episode, but we have some thank yous to make. So first, I would like to thank our patrons who have <laughs> signed up all this week since I posted about doing Pontifex again. <laughs> uh, so many people are weirdly excited for it. Yes, <laughs> they don't know what horror they're in for. But yes, this, if <laughs> this this book is never going to end. If you want to join us and experience very unexpected horrors and rage, we do Pontifex on Patreon. And for that. We can absolve of their temporal punishments Joshua Hunt, Bethany Croteau, and Jesse Winnikind. I'd also like to thank the anonymous person who donated to our coffee page. Thank you. That was very nice. Ooh, coffee. Coffee. Co- coffee. Yes, coffee. coffee. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, people. <laughs> and with that, we can say thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. Greg is the host of the wonderful papal history podcast, Popular History, which is history through Pope-colored glasses. At Popular History, you can also find daily content miniseries like Cardinal Numbers, ranking all of the cardinals, and coming up soon, Habemus Pointsum, where Greg and I will discuss all of the papal transitions. If you need to reach Greg, you can do so at popularhistory at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm.